the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, The hosting chair has made another revolution this week, and so I, Ian Fisher, will be leading you through today's conversation after a pair of terrific shows from my colleagues Elizabeth Heaton two weeks ago and Sally Ganga just last week. We're seeing a lot of engagement from the shows. We're getting a lot of your feedback, and it looks like you're really enjoying what we're putting out there, so we we do appreciate that. Um, It's October 22nd where I am and, and probably where you are, too. And if you're lucky, the most stressful thing in your world is the last-minute detail you're putting into your Halloween costume. Uh, Wouldn't that be nice? Of course, if you're listening to this show, it's more likely that you're consumed by early admissions or preparing for college visits over the winter break. And in that case, you've come to the right place. Uh, We won't be talking ghouls or goblins today, but instead plan to tackle the beast of public service loan forgiveness and discuss all you need to know to dress up your applications for programs in the performing and visual arts. Uh, I think that's probably enough Halloween puns for now. Uh, anyway, stick around for those two segments coming up later in the show. Um, I'd like to start today, though, with a conversation about undergraduate research opportunities. And to do that, I can imagine no better guest than John Fink, Vice President for Research and Strategic Partnerships and Professor of Geology at Portland State University. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, Ian. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So, You know, when I talk a lot with um, students, juniors and seniors in high school, they are starting to think about where they'd like to go to college. I think one of the things that always comes up is this concept of research opportunities. They say, I want to go to a place where I can do research. Um, And I think that they don't have a a really great idea of what exactly that's going to mean for them. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what sort of the range of research opportunities are that might be available to an undergraduate um, in, in the sort of you know college experience, sure, it's a very broad range of opportunities uh, depending on what kind of school the student is going to, what areas they're interested in. Um, basically, it's a way to uh, learn how to solve problems in the world, and those problems can be out in nature, trying to figure out how forests work or, or, like I did, how lava flows work, or they can be cultural, trying to understand how decisions are made and how history happens and, and a whole variety of things. I would say that the most important opportunities have to do with figuring out what it is you want to do for the rest of your career or at least the next stage of your career, and getting involved in research is a good way to, to start to figure that out. 
So I think that's great. And I, you know, some students, they come in and they sit down at my desk and, and they say, research is for me. I know I want to do it. I'm going to find it. I'm going to go out there and, and see what the opportunities are that are available to me. And other students don't talk about it at all, uh, maybe because they're a little bit of af- afraid of the opportunities or because they don't see the relevance for what it is that they want to study. Um, would you say that research is something that should be a part of every undergraduate education or are there types of students who wouldn't benefit from research? I know you probably have a little bit of a bias on this perspective. <laughs> I, I think doing something that could be called research is useful for, for any student. And, and by research here, I mean um, having the opportunity to do some creative work that you can really call your own. And uh, also the thing about research as opposed to other kinds of creative activities that a student might do is it's building on work that others have done before. So you're participating in the great flow of, of learning that uh, college introduces students to uh, a lot more than high school generally does. So are there some students who wouldn't uh, get value out of it? Maybe if they are very clear on what they want to do and they know that they want to be an accountant or they want to be um, other things where you just have to have a certain set of skills. But if they're still trying to figure things out uh, about themselves and about opportunities, I'd say uh, going through a research experience is a really great thing to do. Yeah, and, and you've got experience, I think, at a variety of different institutions, right? You did undergraduate at Colby, which is a, a small liberal arts college. Uh, you did your uh, PhD at Stanford. Um, you worked at Arizona State, which is a, you know, a huge research one institution, and you're now at Portland State. Um, what would you say are, are some of the differences in terms of research opportunities that are provided by different types of institutions? How would you compare an Arizona State University to a Colby College in terms of what research means in action for students on the ground there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that what a student should be looking for in a research project, whether it's at a small liberal arts college or a large research university, is the opportunity to interact with people who have experience doing science and doing, well, not just science, but doing research uh, already. So if you're at a small liberal arts college, the advantage is that there tend to be smaller numbers of students who are working with individual faculty, and you might be able to get that faculty connection more quickly than at a large research university like Arizona State or Stanford. On the other hand, if you are a student participating uh, in research at one of these large universities, it's more likely that you're going to be involved with a research group. And that group might consist of the professor, some graduate students, uh, some other undergraduate students, some staff. And the, the undergrad can learn from all of those people. And they can learn different things from people in those different roles. So the professor might be able to give a, a broad overview of what a career might look like as it develops while um, a staff person or a postdoc or a graduate student could give more hands-on practical experience. If you're in a small college, it's less likely that there would be that range of people that you'd be working directly with, but you might be part of a team of a number of undergrads 
both of my sisters teach at small uh, women's liberal arts colleges at, at Sweetbriar in Virginia and Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts. They are both very active uh, in engaging students, their students, in research, um, many of whom go on to graduate school, uh, many of whom go directly into jobs. So I, I think there are definite advantages to both. Yeah, you know, when we talk about this this college research process from an admission standpoint, admissions counseling standpoint, you know, one of the dominant words in the conversation is is fit. We want to talk about how students fit in an institution in terms of the social experience, in terms of the academic experience. What about fit as it pertains to the sort of setting in which you conduct research? Is there a particular personality type? that you saw that uh, was advantageous for students in getting research opportunities at larger Research One universities? And would there be sort of a, a better personality type that fits at smaller liberal arts colleges? Or can any student thrive in, in either of the two environments? I think any student can thrive. I think the key uh, piece of advice would be to encourage the students to ask questions, even if they seem like dumb questions. Um, that I, I know when I was an undergrad, uh, my first two years, I was pretty shy about talking to professors because I figured any question I could think of, they already knew the answer to, and, and it would just not sound uh, very professional. But uh, I had an opportunity to do a, a January program out in the Mojave Desert with a professor and about 15 other students. And for some reason, I just pushed myself to ask a lot of questions about what we were seeing. And that really opened up a relationship with the professor that eventually led to my graduate career and everything else. And it, it, I, I was pushing myself a little bit out of my comfort zone in doing that. Um, you know, in terms of uh, finding what fits for the student, what kind of research they might want to do, it's it's, it's very hard to generalize. I, I ended up studying geology, making maps, going out in nature. And when I was a kid, we had some woods behind our house. I would go down there. I'd make dams on the stream. I'd sort of make little paths through the woods. And both That's of awesome. those ended up in some way uh, being factors that contributed to the kind of studies I did in fluid dynamics and, and mapping and so on. So it's, I think what's great about research when it works well is it lets you uh, explore something that you're naturally curious about, but you have new tools to do it with. And those tools can be useful as you continue um, your career. Uh, I love that, that story of a young, like a young ecologist or geologist. I, that's really interesting. Some students, you know, they really they're interested in research. They're, they're taught to ask about research opportunities. They know that it's going to be important for sort of developing their critical thought and, and scientific method and, and methods of inquiry. Uh, but some students don't have an idea, I think, of that same kind of excitement that you had in, in damming up little streams and sort of seeing how the ecosystem is working even at a young age. If I'm a 17 or 18-year-old student and I'm thinking about what college I want to go to or where you know, I'm going to sort of make my mark at the university level, uh, how can I start to ask questions that might point me in a direction of, of interest in this particular area? What are the things that I should initially be thinking about um, as I'm looking to make my mark academically? While you're already in a college or before you get there? 
I, I think sort of at the intersection between, you know, high school where you're applying and then at college once you're starting to, to do it. So let's take it as two separate questions. You know, first of all, at a high school, as a high school student, what you look for in choosing a school. And then maybe as a first or second year college student, how you're actually seeking out the opportunities on that campus. Well, I think ideally uh, high school will have uh, some good guidance counselors who have seen lots of students uh, going in, in directions and a guidance counselor who knows enough about the student to be able to give them some personal advice. Uh, I think having a feel for whether you are comfortable being in a very big setting or you want something a bit more intimate is, is important, both in terms of what kind of school you pick and then the kind of research opportunities that might be there. Um, you know, beyond that, I think when you get to college, uh, finding an advisor in your major, e- even if you're not even clear what the major is going to be, but whatever you declare when you first get there is important. You just want somebody to help you frame uh, the next step. You don't have to have everything figured out, but there are people there who have seen hundreds if not thousands of students, and you want to take advantage of that. It's also good to find a few other students who seem to have some common interests with you, common academic interests with you that you can bounce some ideas off of because the students will be more comfortable talking to their peers in many cases than talking to somebody in a more formal role. Yeah, so what I'm hearing from you is that it's sort of a matter of, of putting yourself out there, constantly asking questions of others who have a little bit more experience and asking these questions of yourself. What do I like to do? How do I like to engage with the world around me? What are the questions that I find interesting? And then going to people who are experts or who can be resources and really pulling on those threads as much as you can. Right, and, and I think pushing yourself a, a bit outside of your comfort zone, whatever that, whatever that happens to mean at a given stage. And also recognizing you're not, in most cases, you're not gonna know what your path is more than the next couple of steps. Um, things unfold in ways that are impossible to predict for everybody, especially in colleges. And you have to be open to that and really look forward to it. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like great advice and, and something that I would definitely recommend for the parents and, and students listening to sort of internalize and, and use. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about Portland State, um, you know, especially I, you you just started at Portland State uh, two or three years ago. I remember when you came into town, we got to play a game of disc golf together, which was a lot of fun. Um, and Portland State is, is doing some really interesting things in terms of developing its research profile. Um, I'd like to know a little bit about what, uh, you know, an urban research university like Portland State does to bring research opportunities to its undergraduate students. What are some of the things that you're doing there uh, at the institution? Well, Portland State is what one could call an urban serving university. So our campus is right in downtown. You can't even tell where the campus begins and ends. Uh, It has a history of working with the local community uh, and with local companies and government agencies. And so our students uh, take advantage of that in a whole variety of ways. Uh, Yesterday, I went out to a community garden that has been a research site for 10 years for Portland State uh, faculty and students, where the students go out, they learn about gardening in an urban setting, they learn about 
and, and participate in uh, neighborhood involvement with a local local garden. They think about food deserts and um, urban food supplies. So a whole range of, of applied studies and activities that involve the community uh, and that they can they can imagine how this actually adds a lot of value to the people in, in the city. We have other undergraduates who are working with um, uh, a whole variety of government agencies. We also have a large medical school right next to us, and, and many of our undergraduates are working there like they might at any major research university around the country or around the world. And this is really great because I think that this underscores one of the things that I tell students when they're looking at schools. And that's, don't just look at what the facilities of a particular school are, but look at what the community around that school provides. Uh, Portland is a place as a city that's really engaged and interested in sustainability. You know, Oregon Health and Sciences University, which you mentioned, is a really terrific hospital um, and uh, learning program for students in medical school. And so just thinking about Portland State as being the brick and mortar buildings that, you know, create the campus is a little short-sighted. Um, and and, you know, there are reasons that people like you come in and, and try and develop these partnerships and bring research opportunities to, to students on the campus. Um, are there any other things that you would say PSU is particularly well known for or things that you're growing at the moment that might be of interest to undergraduates? Uh, there are quite a few. Almost all of them have to do with our setting. And, and Portland, as you said, Portland is a city and a community that's been focused on uh, sustainability from both the environmental and the social side. One of the things that we're trying to push now is to bring more technology into that. So cities are described as green or livable, uh, but now there's a lot of focus on are, are cities smart and do they have a lot of instruments distributed that can help uh, monitor what's going on. So we're, we're pushing on that. If, if there's time, I, w I th wanted to just tell you about one student project that might be of interest to your audience. Uh, this was a guy who finished, he's actually a graduate student, but he had been an undergraduate here as well. He was a very avid cyclist, and he would ride around in Portland, and he had the question, is it healthier to be riding your bicycle on streets that have a lot of traffic, or is it better to just take the bus or drive from the standpoint of, of breathing. And he got this incredible opportunity uh, to work with some people with very sophisticated uh, chemical measuring devices. So what he would do is as he would ride down different streets, he would stop every block and breathe into a plastic bag, collect that, save that sample, take it into the lab and analyze what he had breathed in. But at the same time, on his helmet, he had a 360-degree camera that was recording every vehicle that was around him. So they could correlate when he got stuck behind a pickup truck and how that led to benzene in his lungs. It, it was one of the most innovative and Portland-esque uh, student <laughs> projects I've seen. Definitely sounds that way. Uh, great. Thank you so much for your time today, John. Uh, I know you have a lot on your plate. We appreciate your stopping by today to share your perspective with our listeners. My pleasure. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, say hi to Portland for me. Um, well, we're going to head for a break now, uh, but I want you to stick around for our next segment where we'll be discussing the process of applying for programs in the performing and visual arts. Stay tuned.
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey folks, welcome back. Uh, My next guest is Kira Tyler, a former admissions officer at Brandeis University, a college coach, admissions expert, and a jack of all trades with unique and specific experience in music performance. Kira, I've heard that you've got some pretty extensive skill on the flute. Is there any truth to that rumor? (laughs) Yes, there is some truth to that. So um, (laughs) we'll Ian first. (laughs) Um, Thanks for having me on the show. I always love coming on. Um, and I was a flute performance major in college, um, which people are always like baffled and mystified by. They don't even know it exists, but, um, it happens. So, yes. Yeah. And you're, so you don't just walk around all day playing the flute constantly as a flute <laughs> performance major. You're able to do other things. <laughs> At one things. point in my life, though, I did, but currently, no, not quite as much. Great. Cool. Well, this is great. I mean, it's great to have you on here because I think I've worked with a lot of students and, and I know you do too, uh, who have an interest in the performing arts or the visual arts as a possible opportunity for college. And, you know, let's just sort of start with a basic question, which is if I play the flute or the drums or the guitar and I'm interested in musical performance as a part of my college experience, maybe a big part, what are the options that I have in front of me? Sure. So if it's, you know, been a big part of your life and you'd like to continue that, um, you know, in your collegiate years, I always am curious to know at what level. So, you know, are you interested in, in pursuing it as a major? 
um, possibly a double major, a minor, or just as an extracurricular activity. Um, you know, and so from once the student is able to answer that, then we can move a little bit further into, you know, questions around how would you feel about a conservatory? And I think even before we get to that, do you know what a conservatory is um, and what that would entail? Would you prefer a school of music or just do music major within a, a regular university or college? Yeah, and I think I have a vague sense of what a conservatory is, sure. but I'm betting that at least one of our listeners today maybe doesn't. Yeah, so what, so what exactly explain, is a conservatory? Um, yeah. A conservatory offers a highly specialized um, educational experience. So um, typically speaking, um, a conservatory is going to be among the most selective options that you can receive for a performing art um, education. So um, I would say that that includes dance, uh, theater, including musical theater and music. Um, and most of these are audition-based. And the education you receive is geared toward your performing art. So, um, you know, for example, if you went to Juilliard, um, everything for the most part would be geared toward whatever your intended field of study is. Um, and sure, you are likely to have to take a math class or um, an English class, but um, it may even be slanted toward whatever your performing art is. So, uh, writing, but writing for the screen, for example. So it's going to be a highly focused um, education. So if I'm, a, if I'm a high school junior and I'm really serious about music um, or theater or, you know, anything that sort of fits under the performing arts sort of heading, um, you know, if I'm an athlete, I feel like I can get a pretty good sense of how talented I am within a given sport based on what my coaches are telling me, uh, whether I'm making you know, all-state teams, whether I'm being recruited by colleges. But I feel like that question of talent and ability is a little harder to answer when it comes time to think about music and, and performing arts. Or at least to me, it's not quite as intuitive about how you would do that. How do you yeah. go through the process of saying, okay, if I want music to be a big part of my life, that's question A, answered. But question B is, am I good enough to be competitive at a place like a Juilliard or an Oberlin or USC in a conservatory? What would you say to a student who wants some information or feedback there? Definitely. So the sports analogy is one I like to make a lot because um, pursuing a career, uh, not a career, well, yes, a career, but first in education and the performing and fine arts um, is very similar to actually pursuing playing a varsity sport in college. Um, and so, you know, in, in the sense that your talent can be an opportunity to get into places you might not otherwise, uh, just like that happens for, for athletics, the same thing can happen for fine and performing arts. So um, there are, like, some, some metrics that a student can measure themselves up against uh, to determine how competitive they may be in the overall landscape. So certainly, I would say, if you're thinking about... a fairly serious and rigorous program like a conservatory or like a school of fear or uh, like let's say Carnegie Mellon, for example. So they have a very competitive theater program, a super competitive music program as well. Let's say that you were considering a school like that and or a conservatory at, I would say, a minimum. You know, you, you should be that student who is being selected for all state 
doing some competitions, is not new to the concept of auditioning, um, has a role in some sort of um, elite audition, youth orchestra, or jazz group, or something like that. Um, These are also like your star athletes. These students typically are doing summer programs as well. So, um, you know, I would say if you're a student for whom you really love your art but you, for example, are, uh, you know, um, doing musical theater, but you don't take private lessons, you need to get yourself some private lessons immediately um, so you can get a better sense of, of, A, how to prepare, that you're working at your potential, and that you're being competitive. So there are still some metrics around these things. So Carnegie Mellon is a great example, I think, because, you know, we both know as admissions experts that it's a tough school to get into no matter what it is that you want to study. You know, very competitive computer science program and just everything across the board. It's it's a pretty difficult school to get into. And so if I'm a student who has that special something in terms of theater or musical talent, what does that mean for my grades? What do my grades and my test scores have to be at a place like CMU? which is also a really selective academic institution. Mm -hmm. So at a place like CMU, your grades still have to be, you know, you still need to be a really good student. So I would say you should still be a student taking, number one, all of your core classes all four years. Um, The idea that somebody should drop all of their coursework and take four music electives instead will not fly for them. So you still want to be taking Mm -hmm. your core classes, you know, at the most challenging level possible. Um, You still want to be engaged in activities, and it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to do community service and a sport and a, you know, if you're a serious musician or actress and you spend 20 hours a week doing your craft, that's okay. That's perfectly fine, but you need to be active. And uh, your testing needs to be within the realm of their um, range. So it doesn't have to be, you know, it's likely not going to need to be what it should, what it needs to be for computer science. But, um, you know, you you can't be scoring 200 points out of the range. And I I think probably a good analogy would be like, you know, an athlete that's applying for an Ivy League school or, or a Duke or a UNC at places that have really strict academic requirements. You know, you have to also meet sort of an expectation in terms of an ability to do the academic work. That's right, because, you know, as I said, so I went to Northwestern, um, I have a bachelor's degree um, in music performance, so it means I took about 75% of my coursework in music, which is what you can expect at a CMU or a Michigan or a USC, you know, all of these big powerhouse performing arts schools, um, or even Indiana, same thing. Um, but it also means that other quarter, I needed to be able to, to keep up with my peers in my philosophy class and in my stats class and all of that. So you really do need to still be able to do the work. And they will be on the lookout for that. So, you know, even if you're super talented, you know, as you said, yes, you still need to be kind of bumping up sort of an academic standard. Right. And so, and, and this is all sort of great advice within the context of these conservatories at these very strong academic institutions. And then there are examples of schools like your Juilliards or your Berkeley School of Music, places that right. are um, solely musical uh, performing mm-hmm. institutions. Or if we're talking about visual arts, you've got places like the Laguna College of Art and Design, where my brother went, or the Cornish College in Seattle, uh, RISD, places where they're really looking at your artistic ability or musical ability as the reason to bring you in to contribute to their community. And how does that sort of application process work? Yeah, 
it's sure it is different. Um, at some of these schools, like here at the Art Institute, um, you know, in Chicago near me, um, you know, some of these places, and I can't say about them specifically, but some of these places you don't even need any testing um, in order to be admitted. So, um, you know, the academic requirements are going to be must, much less strict. So in this case, if you are bound for those um, kinds of places, you know, listen, if you didn't take physics, um, you should, though, as a musician, by the way, because <laughs> it, it, there right. is definitely something to be learned about physics as it relates to acoustics. But um, if you don't take something like that or if you decide to stop after pre-calc and you don't go any further, uh, that's not going to take you out of the running at all at those kinds of places because it's going to be probably talent first and then um, making sure that things check out, quote-unquote, check out academically. Yeah, and, and I remember the conversation from when I was uh, in a, my sophomore year in college. My brother was applying for art programs, mm-hmm. and he had this really terrific portfolio, very, very talented oil and acrylic painter, and he had sent his portfolio out to all these schools, and they basically sent these notices back to him that were sort of like, just send us your transcript so we can admit you. Like, we don't yeah. even care what's on it. Your art is phenomenal. We want yeah. you at our school, but you have to meet this, like, basic expectation. And so he sent his transcript off and got his offer of admission for those yeah. schools with some and scholarship And I, I would dollars. definitely agree with that, that at those particular kinds of schools, so academies of art, as we said before, conservatories, that definitely would fly. But again, I would caution people if that's their approach, but they might sneak in, you know, a school of art or a school of theater within a university or college setting that um, they're likely to need a little bit more than that. Right. And I think that that sort of underscores this idea or a question that I might have, which is how you approach your list. So I'm working with a student right now who's interested in graphic design, but he also is very partial to, um, you know, Pac-12 schools and, and schools with that sort of big, more traditional college experience. He's not sure he wants to go to a small art school. And so if, if you're thinking about one or the other as being equally viable options, um, you know, what, how would you go about building your college list? Would it be like you have almost two separate lists and you're sort of building a profile for two different goals? Um, yeah. Or is there some way to overlap those things? Yeah, well, I really, you know, you want to, I think, overlap if possible, but sometimes in some ways these can be competing interests, right? So yeah. um, a place like a Juilliard or SCAD you know, Savannah College of Art and Design does not offer the same opportunity um, from an experience angle as USC does. Like, under right. no circumstances, there are very few things that are alike um, right. about what happens there on a daily basis and your peers, but will they provide a great educational experience? Yes, just delivered in different ways. So usually my students who are applying for these kinds of programs apply, number one, to more schools. It's hard to come up with five or seven schools if you want to be, you know, a classical harpist, right? And a lot hinges on your audition. So usually they're applying to more schools. And in some cases, you know, they may be applying to schools where if they weren't able to be admitted to the school of music, they'd be happy to go and either try later or maybe the opportunities are so robust as a non-major or as a minor that 
they'd be happy. So these are typically students that have that cast a wider net. Um, and I would say the same for visual art. Um, you know, we haven't talked about architecture, but because these are, you know, talent-based um, evaluations, these are typically my students that have a larger list. Yeah, and and I think that that's good to talk a little bit about the the talent portion and and the yeah. place where these decisions are made. I mean, when we talk about visual arts, the portfolio is huge, and I think one of the recommendations that I've heard from a friend of mine who works in admissions for art school is that you need to be prolific. You got to be creating work. You got to be doing stuff in your own time, seeking out the help of different teachers, entering in competitions, developing your portfolio, um, because. The more work you have, the better you're going to be, and and the more there is to to sort of evaluate you on. But what about the audition process? Because I've worked with a lot of students, fashion, visual art, you know, dance. Um, but for visually inclined students, um, you also, the more art you have, the, the, you can be choosier in the pieces you pull together for your portfolio. You can also make sure right. that everything makes sense and it's all tying together. If you only have 13 pieces and they're requiring at least 12, it doesn't give you a lot of room. So we do right. want people to be constantly evaluating, um, I'm sorry, creating. Um, we want them to take advantage of things like the NAC Act Performing and Visual Art Fairs where they can do portfolio review day and, you know, great things like that. Um, so all of those things are really important. And from a performance angle, music, theater, dance, um, if you've never auditioned anywhere and you're a senior outside of your school setting, you need to get on that immediately. Because what yeah. we don't want to happen is that somebody's setting themselves up for a situation where they have to do a live audition. And let's say you've got to sing first, then you've got to act out a scene, and then you've got to learn some choreography. If you've never done that outside of the cozy confines of your high school, you, you're in for a new experience. So, you know, as just like continuing to create art, continue to seek out opportunities to perform and audition and get feedback as much as possible. And I think that this is great advice. And, and I think that, Look, if you're a student that's interested in pursuing one of these pathways, this should sound exciting to you. This should be something where you say, awesome, I get to paint as much as I possibly can over the summer. That's what I want to do. I get to go audition and learn new techniques and figure out new ways to sort of tell my story through performance. That's great. That's what I'm looking for. Um, You know, because really colleges are looking for enthusiasm and talent and students that are really serious about this stuff Mm -hmm. um, because they're, they're trying to cultivate the best and most creative contributors to their programs. Um, Are there there any other? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ian. I was just going to say whether you had any uh, last piece of of advice for for students who are applying to these kinds of programs. I'm passionate about this. I could talk about this a long time. But in closing, I would say that, um, you know, I mentioned the Portfolio Review Day that NACAC sponsors. It's a terrific opportunity. I've had lots of kids do it, and it can be really helpful and a way to help calm the nerves. And then I would say, too, that for any of the performing artists out there, whether it's instrument, you know, voice acting, whatever, um, you know, if there's a school you're interested in, see if they offer any summer programs or audition workshops, um, or you can see whether faculty may be teaching in the summer. Most of these people will be teaching at various seminars and workshops and camps. So that can be a really great way to get a sense of how these people instruct and, you know, what, what four years with them might be like. Awesome. That's great stuff. And these are great tips, I think, to be had for students with many different talents and a reminder to all of us that there are great college experiences, whatever our area of focus may be. So uh, it was great talking to you, Kira. Thanks for coming on the show. 
uh, good luck to your students with the approaching uh, early deadlines. Uh, and good luck to you as well. Thank you, Ian. Talk to you soon. Well, folks, that's two down and one to go, uh, but the one to go may be the most important segment we cover today, public service loan forgiveness. I think anytime you hear loan and forgiveness side by side, it's worth a listen. So don't touch that radio dial. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, welcome back to the final segment of today's show. Uh, if you're paying any attention to the presidential campaigns, you're aware that the cost of higher education is a huge topic of conversation nationwide. I think even Joe Biden, who said he wasn't running, came out the next day and said that four-year public education should be free. Um, so, you know, the cost of attending college is a high um, is, is really high, and in order to afford higher ed, many students have to take out loans from the federal government. Uh, my colleague Shannon Vasconcelos, former senior financial aid officer at Boston University and Tufts, is here to talk us through the public service loan forgiveness program. Uh, welcome, Shannon. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, and I'm really excited to learn a little bit about this public service loan forgiveness program. It's something that sounds, at least in title, like a really, yep. really good option for students. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly the loan forgiveness program is, how it came about, and, and the general point behind it? Yeah, so the public service loan forgiveness program, it was created back in 2007. 
and it was created kind of an answer to concerns that you were just talking about that we're still talking about uh, today about the high cost of college and particularly the skyrocketing student loan debt. Um, you know, there's a lot of worry about you know kids borrowing so much money in student loans that they wouldn't be able to afford to take what, what are often lower-paying jobs in the public sector. You know that they'd have to go into the private sector, uh, and, and then we'd have, end up with a shortage of you know teachers, social workers, healthcare workers. You know, people that really help our society. We don't want a shortage of those type of people. So Definitely. the government created this program that what it does is forgives the remaining balances of student loans of public service workers who've been making their loan, uh, their loan payments as promised for 10 years. So any balance that's left at the end of 10 years is forgiven. Um, so, you know, public service workers don't have to worry about, you know, not being able to afford to pay their loans back. You know, they don't have to go into the private sector and, you know, forgo that public service career in order to make enough money to be able to pay back their loans. That's kind of the intention of the program. And when you say the balance of their loans, that includes both the principal and the interest that is accrued? Correct. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like deal. a pretty good, that's a good yeah. deal. So, so 10 years in a particular profession. Now, I think, you know, if I'm interested in this thing, what, the next question I would want to ask is, all right, what kind of profession are we talking here? Teaching right. sounds great. Maybe it's not quite right for me. I don't know if I can stand up in front of a classroom for a whole day, <laughs> day after day. Um, these teachers are amazing. Um, so what are some of the other careers that I might consider if I'm looking into this program? Yeah, so the rules for this program is that you have to be working full-time for either a government entity, so that, and that could be federal, state, local, tribal government, any government entity, or for a nonprofit organization. So that means, you know, if you're a public school teacher, that's a local government, you qualify. You work for the State Department of Public Health, you qualify. If you're a congressman, you qualify, of course. So Congress wrote the rules, so they made sure that they qualify. Um, And then, you know, for as nonprofits go, it's any nonprofit organization. So, you know, the big ones, World Wildlife Fund, UNICEF, you know, if you work for those uh, organizations, smaller community organizations, Anything, as long as it's a registered nonprofit, it counts. Um, hospitals are generally nonprofits, so doctors, nurses, health assistants. Um, most colleges are nonprofits. So, uh, Ian, you and I, when we worked as college admissions or financial aid officers, we would have qualified for loan forgiveness. Um, so what, what is actually, I think, a particularly interesting thing about this program is that you don't have to be doing what is typically considered a public service job, you know, like you know, teaching or nursing would be. The actual yeah. job you do doesn't matter at all. It's all based on the organization that you work for. So you could be, you know, working in marketing at a college, or you could be an accountant for a hospital. You know, being a marketer or an accountant, those aren't usually really considered public service jobs. Um, but since you're doing them at a public service organization, that's all that matters, not the actual job you do. So the loan forgiveness program is not about what you do. It's about where you do it and who you're doing exactly it Exactly right. Gotcha. Um, wow. Okay. So this, this thing, you said it started in 2007 was when it first came Correct. about. Mm-hmm. Um, so we haven't seen yet um, 
or are there are there any early reports on how many people are taking advantage of the loan forgiveness program or just you know what the sort of usage rate is of this particular program? No. So we actually have no idea at this point. So again, they they created the program in 2007. You have to be making payments for 10 years, so that means the, the first loans will be forgiven in 2017. We have absolutely no idea how many people are going to take advantage of this program. Um, and that's kind of a, a something that concerns some elements in, in, in the government. Um, yeah, there's, there's been some, some talk going on. You know, initially when, when this program was conceived, uh, the sort of the vision for it was kind of a, a typical undergraduate student who might have borrowed twenty thousand dollars in student loans, getting some of that forgiven. Um, they are now realizing that wait a second, graduate students are going to take advantage of this program. Um, professional students, so we're talking about doctors, dentists, who have borrowed hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of student loans and getting a large chunk of those forgiven. So there's actually been concern uh, in the government about, uh-oh, what have we done here? <laughs> Might this get a little bit out of control? So that's, that's one thing that I like to bring up when I'm talking to you know, high school students who are um, you know, thinking about, you know, they're just thinking about now where they're applying to college and they're, they're thinking about uh, going into a public service career. And, and they, when, when I mention this program to them, they get, they get really excited and say, oh, you know, I can borrow now whatever I want for college, and it doesn't matter. It's going to be forgiven because I'm going to go into public service. I always um, tell people to, to kind of uh, don't count on the program existing in its current form forever. Um, yeah. it, the government creates a program. It can do away with the program. It can cut funding whenever it wants. Now, normally... Uh, if a program, if the government decides to change a, a particular federal student aid program or they decide to cut funding, normally students who are already um, kind of in the pipeline are, are grandfathered in. So if you've already borrowed student loans, those loans can be forgiven. Um, but if you haven't borrowed your loans yet, uh, government programs can change. They do all the time. Uh, a big student loan program that's been out there forever, the Perkins loan, just disappeared, I think, last week because the government oh, wow. decided to cut funding. So it's not. It's a great program that's out there, and hopefully it's something that uh, students who are going into public service can take advantage of well into the future. I just wouldn't 100% count on it existing in its current form Limits can be put on it. Things can change. Um, so if, if you're a high school student, you know, th- thinking and hoping to take advantage of this program, that's great. You know, keep it on your radar. But don't get yourself into an overwhelming amount of debt just assuming those loans are going to disappear one day because they might not. Yeah, so that, that concept of the, the loan being or this policy being grandfathered in for participants who start to adopt it, it sort of raises a, another question, which is h- how do you start to sign up for this? I mean, do you track where you're working? Is there a, a website where you go and, you know, fill out years like a timesheet of some kind? How are we sort of ensuring that our work as public service employees is, is being used towards that forgiveness program? Right. So you don't actually have to track your employment kind of at this point in any way. You can, you know, work for your 10 years in public service, be making your loan payments, 
The government never knows you're working in public service. They never know you're going to take advantage of this program. You've just made your 10 years' worth of payments, and at that point, you apply for forgiveness and you document that you've been working in public service for 10 years and have made all your loan payments. So that's why we don't have a good grasp of the numbers at this point because you really don't have to do anything until your 10 years are up and you want to apply for forgiveness. Um, so that's why, and again, that first forgiveness isn't happening for a couple years now, so we don't know how many people are going to take advantage of it. You can, however, track your employment uh, and your kind of your qualification for this program if you want to, and I always encourage people to do that. Um, there is a great website that talks all about various um, government student aid programs. It's called studentaid.gov. On that website, you will find what they call their employment certification form. You can fill that out on an annual basis and submit it to the government, and they will get back to you and verify that your employment does, in fact, count. It is one of the, the uh, you are working for full-time for a nonprofit or a government agency. They'll verify that your employment counts. They'll verify that you've got the right type of loans, that you're making payments on the right type of repayment plan. That's the tricky thing mm-hmm. about this program. Uh, I think I wrote a blog about it um, that folks, if they're listening, they can find it on our website, getintocollege.com. But I talked about this program being like um, a three-legged stool. You have to have the right job, <laughs> have the right loans, and be making the right payments. If you one of those legs of the stool disappears, the whole thing collapses, you don't qualify. Um, so if you fill out this employment certification form, the government will make sure that you are on track. They'll tell you if you are or you aren't. Uh, and if you're not on the right track, you can make some changes, uh, make sure you, know, you get on the right repayment plan so that you do end up eventually qualifying for this program. I, I have a, just a couple of questions about the, the way those 10 years are accrued. Do they have to be 10 consecutive years, or can they be 10 years over a 15 or 20 year span? Yep. They do not have to be consecutive. So yeah, you can, you know, be working in a job for a couple years in public service. Eh, not sure if you like it. Try it. the private sector for a while. And, oh, really don't like that. I'm going to jump back into public service. And yeah, sure. as long as um, what it is, is 120 total payments. So that's, you know, every month for 10 years. Um, they do not have to be consecutive payments. They can be spaced out. You know, if you decide to you know, go to graduate school somewhere in the middle, that's okay, too. Uh, they don't have to be consecutive as long as it's 120 total payments over some time period. That's fine. I see. So it's it's about the, the payments that you're making and not just having done the work. So I couldn't have worked for five years at Reed and then gone to take a loan out to go to graduate school and then counted those five years towards the 10 years of public service. No, nope. you to have to be loan. making the loan payments while you are working in public service. Gotcha. Okay. Um, And I'm wondering just about sort of, uh, you know, the types of loans here. Is this, these are all federal loans. They're not private loans in any way. Are they they all the kinds of loans that we're going to get through the, the completion of the FAFSA and submission of the FAFSA? Exactly right. Yeah. It's any federal direct student loan. So that is, um, Almost all of the government loans that you might see on any financial aid award currently. There are older government loans that you borrowed from a bank that don't qualify, um, though you can actually consolidate them into the federal direct program so that they will qualify. And you're absolutely right that any private education loans do not qualify loans. You know, you borrowed from Sally May or Wells Fargo or somebody, those don't qualify. 
Um, so again, if you're a student or a parent out there uh, who's now looking at colleges and thinking about borrowing student loans, if you're a parent who works in public service currently and you're going to borrow loans for your kids, or if you're a student who's thinking about going into public service, you might want to stick with the government loans, stay away from the private market uh, because those government loans may eventually be forgiven. Great. Great. Well, thanks a lot for the time, Shannon. Uh, Really interesting program to have learned a lot about, and I appreciate your stock being by to explain it to us. My pleasure. Uh, Well, that's all the time that we have for today. I I hope that you've enjoyed the show. You've enjoyed our guest host series. If you'd like to listen back to find my past shows, or if you'd like to hear from Sally and Beth instead, uh, check us out in the archives or as a podcast on iTunes. I usually listen to my car on the way home from dropping off my kids at school, and it's a great way to do it. Uh, Next week, Beth will be back. She'll be discussing the supplemental essay series. Um, uh, We'll be talking about Stanford University and Wisconsin's essay supplements. We'll also talk about college applications for the B student and the net price calculator. So we hope that you'll come on back next week uh, and every Thursday at 4 Eastern, 1 Pacific, for getting in a college coach conversation. Have a great afternoon and an even more terrific weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.